I'm here with Father Peter John Cameron, and I wanted to talk to you, Father, because uh, you've taught homiletics for 24 years, and I was hoping to just uh, talk about preaching a little, and uh, it gets criticized, yet it's so vital to the life of the church. Um, I myself, I love Protestant preaching. I listen to that on yeah. podcast, and so, um, but you've, you're a teacher, professor of it. What are some tips and that you would give a priest, and maybe some common errors we fall into. I guess the first tip has to do with being mindful of why we preach. So what's the outcome? Why are we doing it in the first place, and what's the result that we are hoping for? Um, and a, a lot of problems in preaching can be solved right there. Because sometimes the conception that a preacher has of preaching uh, is the very thing that gets them into trouble. So just a few days ago, Pope Francis said very emphatically, preaching is not catechesis. He said, like the catechesis I'm giving you right now, preaching is not that. Preaching exists uh, for the same reason that the church exists, which is to call people to an encounter with Jesus Christ alive in the flesh and it's to generate that life in them so when we preach obviously there is the communication of ideas we do come away with a better insight with a, a bit more learned but the point of preaching is not so much to educate as it is to generate so with that in mind it seems to me that the first thing that the preacher has to ask is, all right, well, what is the spiritual or the psychological condition of my people? And when I ask priests this, which I always do when I give preaching workshops, they invariably say they're broken, they're isolated, they're lonely, they're angry, they feel powerless over the injustices in their life, and a long list of other woes and difficulties, real challenges, that uh, are, are so heartbreaking. Never does anyone say, my people are lacking in catechesis. They're lacking in an understanding of, of the truths of the faith. Is it, is, it a, is it the case that they're not catechized well enough? Yes, I think it is, but it's not the most urgent thing that they're facing. So that means that the, the truest, uh, the, the best way that we can preach is to offer what uh, really corresponds to the situation, to the condition that our people are in, which means if people are broken, then preaching has to be an offer of healing. It has to be something that is going to uh, restore life, give life back to people who, who uh, you know, are lacking in life. And as I say, it's not so much a matter of the conveyance of ideas as it is accompanying them with a presence. So, like, steps you would recommend. I know I find this frustrating. Sometimes you're feeling uninspired, and I wish there was a kind of a plug-and-chug crank, you know. <laughs> okay, this is what I do to manufacture a homily. Do you have some steps that help you to preach when you're not overwhelmed with inspiration? Well, I'm, I'm almost never overwhelmed with inspiration. And what I have found tremendously helpful is what Pope Francis has written in uh, The Joy of the Gospel. That, I think, is one of the single best 
helps to understanding the homily and providing uh, practical tips for preaching better that um, I've read in, uh, in modern times. And he says every homily should have three elements. It should have an idea, an image, and a sentiment. And it sounds very simple. I mean, it is simple, but it's also very profound. It, it corresponds to something that Aristotle says in, in, in the rhetoric, uh, in which he says every act of public speaking has to have logos, ethos, and pathos. So the logos would be the content, the substance, the idea. Um, the, the ethos is, might correspond to the image because its ethos has to do with how does this affect me, the speaker, personally. So it has to do with witness. And then the pathos has to do with sentiment or feeling. So, again, it's not meant to be abstract and dry and generic. Uh, words that both this Holy Father and Pope Benedict XVI have sort of scratched off the list of, uh, of uh, appropriate words to apply to preaching. But um, something that really moves people, stirs their hearts. So I always ask myself, okay, what's my idea? What's my, uh, is there, is there um, an image, a really good image? And that's the hardest thing for me, is finding an image that really connects with the people that are listening to me. And the point of the image is that it, it verifies what I am saying as my, my main idea, my proposal. And, and is it moving? So, and the, the feeling can come through the story that's used, and it could also come through the delivery, um, which is why, for example, I'm a big, big advocate of not preaching with a text, not reading a homily, but really looking at the people and giving them the gaze of God, because the feeling can come just by the preacher's willingness to be vulnerable and look at them and, and really take a chance being a father in front of them. And also along these lines, um, it, it has to do, when, I, when I'm lacking in, in inspiration, it's always my fault in the sense that I'm not reading the scriptures in the way that they're meant to be read. I'm not reading them with the same imagination with which they've been written. So I have some tools that um, I go to, and sometimes it can just be, for example, a, a, a verb tense that I'm not aware of it because I'm not reading the original Greek, but for example, just the other day in the homiletics class, a, a seminarian preached a beautiful homily about the epiphany, and he was talking about Herod uh, uh, confronting the Magi because he asks them a question. He says, um, you know, where, where is this, th this Messiah that you're talking about? But he said something that never occurred to me before. He said, in the Greek, it is in the imperfect, which means he didn't ask it once. He was like harassing them to mm -hmm. find out. Mm -hmm. And this opened up a whole new vista in a way because Herod became a kind of a symbol for, I don't know, um, how we let anxiety become uh, an idol in our life. And he, and he preached a brilliant homily just based on that idea. So sometimes it can be something as simple as that, but the work is really... Uh, ferreting it out of the text. I remember at a conference I was at, you were speaking, and you, you talked about an Aristotle, if I remember right, that like that image, um, uh, 
that captures it is is kind of like a fruit of just brilliance that <laughs> either you have it or you don't. Yeah. One of our guys is pretty good with that. He'll sometimes he'll start with an image of something and he'll draw you in. Like you say, oh yeah, I know what that is. I felt that, and it kind of like sucks you in. And I thought it was a very powerful way to begin the homily because then you kind of listen to what he's how he's going to connect it. He paints like something vivid. And, and is that what Aristotle said though? It is kind of a just a gift people have. Yeah, along those lines, he said metaphor is the mark of genius, being, be, be able, being able to make metaphors. And he says it's something that cannot be taught. You can learn it by paying attention to people and, and, and you can sort of get it that way, but it's, not, it's really not possible to teach somebody how to make metaphors in the way that you can teach somebody how to cook or something. So it, it mostly comes through osmosis. But I think in terms of structure, and that's one of the big challenges to effective preaching, and Pope Francis talks about this too also in, in The Joy of the Gospel, to begin with a very compelling image that, as you say, really draws people in and rivets their attention is a, a very effective rhetorical device. And then if the homily somehow can conclude returning to that story and putting a twist on it or, or adding something or... Um, showing another dimension that um, really flows out of the good news that you've preached, then it's a, a practically perfect homily. There was a, <laughs> it really is. It really is. A couple of years ago, there was um, a wonderful article in the Observatory Romano by a young Jesuit who teaches preaching at the Biblicum. And he said, you have to read the article because it's just written so well, but he says, we basically, in preaching, we have to use images because people think in images. And he says, there are, and so there's basically two ways of using images in a homily. One is the way that the friar you're talking about does, which is it's sort of the, the overarching framework for the whole homily. He said the other is you make a point, and then the image captures the essence of what you're trying to talk about in the most compelling way. Mm. Um, and, and this makes all the difference. And when a homily doesn't, have an image, he says what, what ends up happening is that the preacher loads idea after idea after idea onto people, and, he, and then he uses an image to make his point. He says, it's like you've, you've loaded all of these heavy ideas into a big trunk, and you expect people to pick it up and carry it away. And he says, nobody will do it. Nobody. But the image compels you because, and the Pope speaks about this, because the, the, the image... Um, as I say, we think in images, and the image images gets our imaginations working. And as I say, the point of it is is to verify. So it's not to entertain so much as it is for to give me the chance to use my freedom to say, yes, what Father is saying is true, because, because I can see the truth of it by comparing what he's saying to this image, which is so familiar in my life. Mm -hmm. And that's actually... That, this is why Aristotle says that learning is, is, um, is the delight of the, of the human being. You know, I, I was at a gas station one time, filling up my car, and they had a woman there next to me, and we started talking, and she was a fallen away Catholic, and, uh, and she's going to one, a megachurch just down the street from us. And I said, well, why did you leave? And... Uh, Maybe I'll put it nicer. I said, what drew you there? <laughs> and she said, because they explained or talked about the scriptures to me. Mm. 
And um, how, how does that come in? How does the, the scriptures come in into the homily? And what is she talking about there? She's onto someone, onto something, because the scriptures, you know, uh, I read this just the other day. I think it was in Father Survey Pinker, the great moral theologian. It says, before the scriptures want to propose an idea to us, they want to woo us with love, something along those lines. And I think sometimes we reduce the scriptures to like moral guidebooks. So I read the text and I want to, I want to draw out of it some proposition about my behavior and what's... But the scriptures are not that, because if that was God's intention, then he would have written the the, the, had the Bible written, you know, through the inspired authors in the way that the catechism was written or the code of canon law or that little manual that's in the, com the glove compartment in your car, you know. Nobody takes that and reads it expecting to find deep spiritual truths. You know, that's a sign that there's something psychologically wrong if you're using that book that way, but not the Bible. So one of the problems, I think, with preaching is that we don't approach the Scripture with the same expectation about what it wants to um, do for us, how it wants to feed us. I mean, what I've always been taught is that we have to read the sacred scriptures with the same imagination with which they've been written. So, and it's hard work, but it's also tremendously gratifying. Really, the most important question to ask reading, for example, a gospel text is the question, why? Why does the author include this detail? Why is it told in this way? You know, for example, in, in Mark 5, I think it is the story of the, the hemorrhaging woman, it begins with the story of Jairus. So Jairus comes to Jesus because his daughter is sick, but then the, the, the story is interrupted, and then we have the story of the, the woman with the flow of blood, and then we return to Jairus. Well, Mark does this on purpose, this sandwiching effect, this literary device, because he wants us to know that what has happened in the healing of the woman is um, the, the, the hope that we, we garner from witnessing what has happened to the woman. We want to take that with us as we go to the house of Jairus because Jesus is going to be met by people that are full of doubt and are, are cynical and suspicious and saying, you're wasting your time coming here, the, the, the little girl is dead. But we know because of what has happened scripturally to this woman that it is more reasonable to have hope than to despair. But it happens through the literary structure of the text. So there are many wonderful resources, and especially those by Scott Hahn and uh, uh, Brent Petra and uh, Erasmo Leva Maricacus, all, all kinds of people that read the text in this way, and just getting a few of those can be a breakthrough for preachers. And then the structure of the homily itself, you said that was so vital. You know, I was at a funeral the other day, and they, were, they had some family members give a eulogy at the end of Mass. And, um, and one, I thought for sure he was a Protestant because he had this eloquence, and, he, and he, he started like with a scripture text and then kind of just like clearly explained it and wove it into the person's life, you know. And, it, uh, and just the style and structure was compelling. It was like these televangelists, you know, you see there's something about their voice and everything that just draws you in. What is it structure? How does, like, logic or plot, or how does, 
How does that, why is that so effective and important? Well, the main thing about structure is that it is internal. So obviously you can say a, a homily has external structure, a beginning, middle, and an end. But that's, that's just um, skimming the surface of what structure is. Structure is really the emotional response of the hearers to the unfolding of each element of the homily to a climax. So that means that a structure is good if I want to keep listening. So in order to create a good structure, which does take a little uh, work and, um, and uh, is a little bit of an art, the, the preacher just has to ask himself, okay, well, at this point in my homily, how are my people feeling? Are they, are they going to start to drift? Are they going to start to daydream? Or are they wondering what's going to happen next, which is the element of, good, of a good story? The more that that suspense and that tension, which involves, it involves the intellect, involves the feelings, it involves the passion, so a good story, a structure will weave in all of those. If that tension is sustained throughout the length of the homily, and the first thing that the preacher has to ask himself in preparing a structure is, okay, how long is my homily going to be? So if you know it's going to be an eight-minute homily, which I think is a good length for a Sunday homily, then um, as you're going along, you say, okay, are, uh, have I inserted enough variety and other rhetorical elements to keep people interested, or have, have I bogged it down? Has it become too weighty? Has it become too academic? And if that's the case, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to just trash the whole homily. It just means you have to add some new things, you know, that, to get people back. One of the most effective tools for learning how to preach I gained from studying screenwriting. And I, I studied a course at the American Film Institute, and the teacher was, a, was brilliant. And what many people don't know is that in studio-made Hollywood films, the, if next time you watch one, set your watch and look what happens at the 28th minute in the movie. And without fail, in minute 28 of every studio-made Hollywood film, this is the moment when something cataclysmic happens that determines the course of the action for the rest of the film. For example, so in The Wizard of Oz, what would you say the 28th minute is? Gosh, uh, when was the tornado? Was that the tornado? <laughs> the tornado in The Wizard of Oz is... is it's dramatic, but it, it the, the it's not it. The, the rest of the action doesn't flow from the tornado. The appearance of the wicked witch. Exactly, yeah, yeah. the appearance of the wicked witch, which is dead center on minute twenty-eight. Yeah. Now, why is it that? Because people in show business did their homework and they realized people can only listen to twenty-seven minutes or so of exposition, setting things up before they get antsy and they say, come on, let's go, we want to get going with the story, but you need to know who the characters are, what the situation is, etc. But it's never 20, minute twenty-seven and it's never minute twenty-nine, it's always minute 20, 28 because they want to get as much as they can mm -hmm. into the... So the preacher has to do the same thing with the homily, say, okay, when in an eight-minute homily, when are my people going to start to get weary and start to fade? Say it's minute two or three. Okay, well, then that's just from a human point of view. He has to build in something to get their attention back, mm -hmm. whether he says something funny or he tells a story or any... There are so many different rhetorical devices they could use. And, um, and, and this gives a, a homily texture, and it, it makes it very easy to, to listen. 
and it has a tremendous benefit for the preacher because a well-structured homily is practically impossible to forget. So if the pr preacher has a really well-wrought structure, he doesn't he doesn't have to use a text because he, it will be difficult for him to not remember what he's going to say next. And it would, it's principally like this point leads to this point, leads, they're connected. Mm -hmm. That would be the part of the structure yeah. and yeah. conclusion. And I mean, I think, as I say, every homily has to have an idea. Every homily has to have an image. I would also say every homily has to have some application. So people... They, they want the help of, okay, what is the, the, the first, uh, the next first step I can take to apply this to my life? Not something major, just something little, so that I can live my life more deeply united to Jesus Christ after I leave Mass today. What's the first step to that, that deeper um, life of faith with him? And um, again, there's no... I don't preach formulas. I don't preach set methods. I, uh, it, you can start with a story. You can end with a story. There, there are all kinds of um, variations on the way that, that it, it actually is, is framed. But the main thing is because structure is principally interior, that is to say it's determined by the the capacity of the, the congregation to hear it, you have to start with your congregation. Mm. So determining how long it is, and also very important, how do I want people to feel at the end of the homily? This is what Aristotle, Aristotle would call catharsis, which is an act of purging or cleansing. Mm. So these days, almost every homily I preach, I just want my people to feel deeply encouraged, that living a life of faith, being a Catholic, is not a waste of time, that it is the key to the happiness that they're looking for. And I just want them to feel really encouraged in, uh, in, in, in the good news that they have heard, uh, read, and, and, uh, and proclaimed to them. So everything, every choice I make for the elements of the homily is ordered to bring about that ultimate climactic experience, inner feeling of of feeling encouraged. And, and that is going to help the preacher a lot to determine what belongs and what doesn't belong. Are you, do you love movies? you watch movies? I do, yeah. yeah. I, I always think it's a fascinating question for me, like why does this work, this movie work? Why is this good? Why is this, this other one not? And you know, we, the guy, the brothers are watching some movie about the Camino the other night, and um, it just opened up like with the scene of a baby crying, but it was like so vivid, and it was so the image was so clear and just kind of beautiful. And I couldn't stay and watch the film, but I remember I just kind of thought to myself just how engaging it is, just to have something beautiful there, or some beautiful music, or some kind of striking, compelling scene, uh, that it just it just caught me immediately, you know, and. I think about connecting that with preaching. I'm not sure. I mean, it might be eloquence or the vivid scene you, you kind of paint or portray. But um, do you ever think about that question? Like, what makes a good movie? Like, why does this one work? And maybe the production values aren't that great. And, 
and I don't know, like sometimes it's lines and sometimes the plot's not that great, but there's something kind of gritty and true about it that's just engaging. And do you ever think about that? Yes, yes. And, and in fact, you know, for example, just start to start from a, a very basic question. Why don't we get bored when we watch a movie? And a movie can be three hours long. And you sit there for the three hours and you're, you're engrossed the whole time. This is practically miraculous, yeah. you know, because what else can you sit through for three hours without getting bored? Well, the fact that you don't get bored is a testimony that the, the movie is very well structured. It has already anticipated how the, the, the viewer feels, what, what is required to keep the, the viewer's attention going, etc. So uh, that's a big part of it, that if even movies that aren't great in terms of, I don't know, the acting or some of the, uh, some of the other, I don't know, the, 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 the script, et cetera, just because it, it holds your attention is a sign that there's something sort of excellent about it. Mm. But then also, as you say, um, even if the production values aren't great, but it corresponds to something in your heart. You know, it answers one of the big questions. You know, you know, why am I here? Why is there suffering? What is the purpose of my life? Is, is, is there any real meaning? When we experience that vicariously through the, the, uh, the challenges and the, the, the pitfalls and the victories of, of the characters that uh, we witness on the screen, that has a very sort of almost salvific effect on us as, as viewers, you know, because we say, well, if it's happening to him and, and like him, the circumstances of his life are not perfect, like mine are not perfect, then maybe there's hope for me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think, because sometimes I, I feel like, why does that move me? This one scene kind of touched me, and it kind of touches some kind of maybe pain or struggle I have or something that's... That's moving, and um, and I, I always think it's, I guess, too, like in homilies, I mean, I'm not at all at that level, but I'm really thinking about that. I'm just trying to get this thing done or something. But I think it seemed like that would be worth kind of examining is, like, am I touching to the rea am I touching the reality of their life and their likely struggles, like you talked about, you know, what we're kind of hungering for more and difficulties. Yeah. And, uh, but I guess... I guess there's kind of universal stuff we all struggle with, right, yeah. that you try to touch and connect with. Yeah. 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 This is it. This is why, you know, sometimes people, sometimes people say, well, how am I going to preach to a congregation that has young people, old people, rich people, mm -hmm. poor people, educated, not educated? No, every human heart is made the same, and, and it's looking for something, and, it, and what it's looking for cannot be satisfied by anything finite. It has to be infinite, and when we start to talk about the infinite, then we're talking about God. So the preacher can, be, can preach with great certainty because he is, uh, he, he is ad addressing a, a group of, of uh, creatures who all are possessed by what the Catechism calls the religious sense, because human beings are innately religious. Whether they say they believe in God or not, mm -hmm. the thing is they want an infinite amount of whatever it is that they think is going to make them happy. And as I say, once we start mm -hmm. talking about the infinite, we're talking about God. So the more that the preacher is convinced about the human heart and the way the human heart is made, 
the better chance he has of reaching everyone, which is why for me the best definition of preaching I've ever run across, which is by Cardinal Ratzinger when he was giving a talk in Canada, he said the, the aim of preaching is to tell the human being who he is and what he has to do to be himself. It's to tell him what he can base his life on, what is worth living for and what is worth dying for. He never mentions God. Hmm. It's just about giving people back their humanity, showing them what it means to be human. Because when people begin to feel their humanity, then they start crying out for God. One last question. Uh, <laughs> I know sometimes, um, you know, the, was it the Greeks that come to the apostles and say, we want to see Jesus, right? And do you ever feel that lack? Like, uh, I feel like I don't know him well enough to tell you about him, you know? And, uh, how do you how do you get to know him better? If we're trying to foster an encounter with others, right? We want to know him ourselves. And you ever feel that kind of poverty? Uh, uh, only every time I preach. <laughs> every time I sit down to preach, three terrible things happen. I I, I read the text and I say, um, I don't know anything. I'm a total fraud, and I have nothing to say. <laughs> and I just have to push through it. And so for me, the, the secret is going immediately to my vulnerability, immediately to my need, immediately to my nothingness, because Jesus came because he, he loves all of those things, and, uh, and he has pity on our nothingness. So that's when I just start begging of the text and begging the Holy Spirit to show me through the text how Jesus really is wooing me to himself through, through my own nothingness. And the fact is, um, the, one of the strongest uh, what, uh, dynamics of preaching is the witness of the preacher. Just when the preacher stands in front of his people and, and, and opens his heart to them, the point is you're showing them, the preacher's showing them that the preacher has said yes to Jesus Christ once again today. And, and whatever that reason for that yes is, is compelling. So the more I can share the, the reason why I opted to say yes to Jesus Christ today, even though there are a thousand reasons that the world tells me I should be saying no, the reason I said yes today is, is the thing that makes homilies most, most scintillating and, and interesting to the people of God. All right, well, thanks so much for chatting with us. That was great.